I invite you to take your copy of God's Word with me. Let's take our Bibles together to the Gospel of Matthew this morning, Matthew's Gospel. And let's turn together to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And this morning we will direct our focus and our attention on verses 1 through 5. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. The title of the message this morning is Greatness in the Kingdom. Greatness in the Kingdom of God. Looking there in God's Word, Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, the Word of God reads, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Here in Matthew chapter 18, we, as we study Matthew's gospel, Matthew divides up the contents of his gospel into sections. As we come to Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, we come to a new section. It is the fourth major teaching section of this gospel. In fact, one commentator has described it as this. It is the single greatest discourse that our Lord gives among the church and of the redeemed people in His church. Simply put, Matthew chapter 18 is one of the most important chapters in Matthew's teaching because of the content that settles on and shows us in Jesus' teaching of what is life in the local church. In fact, if you remember in Matthew 16, we saw the first of Jesus' references to the church when he said, I will build my church. And we saw that just recently. Here in Matthew chapter 18, we now have the second reference to the church, forming a, a pair, a bookend of references as Jesus begins to pour into his disciples, teaching his disciples about the church, what it is, what life is like. In fact, just the simple heading of Matthew chapter 18 as a whole, in verses 1 through 11, Jesus focuses on the reception of the believers into the church. Just looking with a macro point of view, he he begins to instruct the reception of those who are in the church. Verses 12 through 14, the restoration of those who are in sin or backslide. How is it that we go about in these interpersonal relationships into dealing with this? And how do we take the next steps? Verse 15 through 35 points to the reconciliation of brothers with brothers and sisters with sisters. In fact, Matthew 18 is so important in the life of the church just to simply say Matthew 18 or according to Matthew 18. Most people know in their mind at least a section of teaching where Jesus teaches about how to go about solving problems in the life of the church. It's so well known. In fact, to say Matthew 18, it's buzzwords for equating to life of instruction when there are disputes or dealing with gossip or dealing with compounded problems within the church or dealing with those who have departed and they're absent. They're, they're like wayward sheep, if you will. And so just to even mention the name of Matthew 18 or the reference Matthew 18, that is what most people comes into most people's minds and they would be correct. But there is much more to Matthew 18 than that, and we will get to it succinctly. Let me just say this. Matthew 18 is pivotal 
and it is important. And so particularly to the church here at Grace, let me encourage you to be as faithful as possible as you can to the teaching of sermons on Matthew chapter 18 in the next few weeks. And if for some reason you're not able to be with us, let me also encourage you just to go back and listen to it as well. Because as Paul describes in Philippians 1 and 2, when he describes unity in the gospel, as he describes what life is like in the local church, Matthew 18 helps us to understand what it is to have one heart, one mind, one spirit that is united in the work of Christ. In fact, we'll be referencing Philippians 2 uh, later on in the message, and so we'll make that connection. But it is so important to the health and the life and the vitality and the strength of our church here at Grace. We'll mention these headings just as we come to them. Number one, as we look into this text, we see the concern that the disciples have. Number one, the concern here in verse one. Notice this question that they come to Jesus with. They say there, verse one, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, the audacity here, uh, who, who then, Jesus, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We're blown away at this question. But they're coming to the right person. They're coming to the right place. We have to give the disciples credit in that they're coming to Jesus. And friends, let me just encourage all of us that it is wise and good and helpful and right to come to Jesus with both your good questions and also your foolish ones. It is good to come to Jesus with the really important things, and it's also good to come to him with what you think is important and really is not important. And that's what we see here with the disciples. Notice in verse 1, it says there, at that same time, literally it means at the same hour. What hour are we talking about? Well, if you were here last time together, it's connecting back to the end of 17 where Jesus has sent Peter to go collect the temple tax and to give it in the place of him and, and Peter. And it's almost as if they're in Peter's house. The context here is they're still in a home. They're at Peter's dwelling. They're in Capernaum. And it's as if we assume Peter's off doing that. And if you remember, Peter's been receiving some bit of correction lately in the context of Matthew 16, 17, and 18. And so we're surmising here, but it's almost as if the other disciples are saying, well, now that Peter's gone, he's received some rebukes lately. He's being sent off on an errand. Who really is the, the real greatest? in the kingdom of heaven? Who's going to have position? Who is going to have some authority? Who is going to be able to sit, as we find out in other passages, John's gospel, to the right hand of Jesus and to the left hand of Jesus? In fact, Matthew 17, 26, this connecting, this concern that they have is connected to when Jesus tells Peter, the sons are free, Peter, nevertheless, lest we offend those of the temple. Go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first and when you have opened its mouth, you will then find the piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. Verse 1 of Matthew 18. At that time, that moment, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What are they referring to? Well, Matthew's made clear is that the Jewish king is here. He has made reference to the message of Christ. Matthew chapter 4, repent for the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This question, who is the greatest in the kingdom, it points to and refers to, it speaks to the reign of Christ on earth. If you've been listening carefully, the disciples, much like the Jews and the Israelites, are looking with great anticipation to the establishing of a real kingdom here and now. And they felt that Christ is the Messiah, who He is, but they think He's establishing that 
kingdom here and now, and they will taste and see a victory, physical victory, actual reigning upon a throne in the here and now. This is their focus. In fact, they are dull-headed and their ears are stopped. In fact, notice the question, who, who? In other words, who of us, who among us will have these positions of power? In fact, Mark's gospel, chapter 9, verse 33, sheds light on this very same thing. He says in Mark 9, 33, when the disciples came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, Jesus, he began to question them, asking them this, what were you discussing by yourselves on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another among themselves which one of them was the greatest. Evidently, this conversation had continued or started out there, and it's now come in here. Matthew records for us that in the house, he looks to them, they then ask him the question. It's interesting. In fact, as we look here in the text, we look at this in the context of what has Jesus been trying to teach his disciples? We spent most of last Lord's Day's message just looking at the summary of the gospel. We saw in verse 22, here in our passage, Matthew 17, he reminded them that the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Remember the last phrase there? It's there in your Bibles if you want to look at it. It says, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. It's not to say they didn't hear, and it's not to say they didn't know. Jesus is teaching them about his coming death and crucifixion and resurrection and ascension it's that they don't want to hear and it's that they don't want to know this is not the plan (laughs) this is not their plan this is not their vision so it's like a little child as he will invoke here in just a moment just like a little child whose brain flips and they just think i can't handle that right now they go back to what is in an immature way what is comfortable for them well I, i don't like that meat let me come back to the cotton candy Let me devour that which is sugary, that which gives an instant rush, that which pleases, in a sense, just to give the metaphorical language, the the flesh. I like cotton candy. We don't like this message of death and the cross, Jesus. So let's come back to what our favorite subject is. Who's the greatest in the kingdom, right, guys? This is what they keep coming back to. They're not hearing what Jesus is saying. And the reason they're not hearing is they don't want to believe. They don't, they don't want to hear what Jesus is saying, and they don't want to acknowledge that this is the plan. In their mind, they keep saying, no, this is not the plan. They immaturely chose not to dwell upon what Christ is nailing home to them. They're not meditating on and pondering upon what he is revealing to them. In fact, what they are meditating on and pondering upon is what he has not revealed to them. And you know what? We do the same thing today, don't we? In fact, Luke chapter 9, verse 36 says, An argument started among them as to which of them would be the greatest. Listen, I would love to be able to tell you that the disciples are corrected and instructed and informed and that they never come back to this subject. But in other passages in the Gospels, it tells us that again and again, they keep coming back to pride, position, esteem, greatness, and a reign, listen here, which is not theirs. In fact, Luke chapter 22, verse 21, we'd love to be able to say, they learned their lesson here, never to return again, but that's not the case. Luke 22, 30, uh, 21 says this, but behold, Jesus says, the hand of my betrayer is, is here with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. He, hear the weight of, of Jesus' words. 
Hear what he is saying. The hand of the betrayer, Judas, is here. It's on the table. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed. Verse 23 of Luke 22. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. This is the hour of Jesus' betrayal. Listen, church, again and again, when the hour is pivotal and important, here we see these disciples literally dropping the ball. Dropping the ball. Who, who would choose these guys to be on their team? Who would want these seals to back them up? Because these seals are dropping the ball. These friends are not getting the lesson. Luke twenty two twenty five, 25, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, notice here, He who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves it? Is it not he who sits at the table in the eyes, implication here, in the eyes of the flesh? But then notice what Jesus says, yet I am among you as the one who serves. This world's value system is one of precision, position, it's prestige. But Jesus says, not so. Greatness in the kingdom of God is evaluated by humbling yourself. Jesus says, I am one among you who serves. Here's the point. You would think... We would like to think that this is just a bad mistake or a bad day in the life of the disciples, but it's not. This is a reoccurring problem. This is a reoccurring issue. And why is it? Why is it that the disciples cannot get over their, themselves or the reign of a physical reign with their role in it? Listen, it, it would be one thing to understand, Jesus, we long for your reign. It's for your glory, and we want it here and now. Lord, please, this is for you. We want to see your name be magnified. It's one thing to understand that, and they're not getting that. But that's not even what we're talking about. It has nothing to do with Christ. They're just excited that Christ means them. Christ means our. The, the, the coming of Christ, he's the king, but that also means we are elevated and we are exalted. Listen, they're missing it. Why is this such an issue for the disciples? And friends, why is it such an issue in our sanctification as well? The fallen nature of man, the fallen nature of the flesh, loves to be exalted. And I need to remind all of us, myself included this morning, that there is only one who reigns. There's only one who's exalted, and that is God. There's only one who God is highly exalted, and that is Christ. And we dare not desire what is not ours. We dare not seek after that which we do not deserve. We in our flesh, often, whether we realize it or not, want to take God's place. And when that happens, like it's happening in the ear and the life of the disciples, we hear the whisper and the spirit of Lucifer in the garden. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13, God rebukes him and says, You are in Eden, O Lucifer, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, the emerald with gold, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. You were the anointed, chosen cherub who covers. That means watches over like the bishop of the garden of God, the kingdom of God. You had an elevated place of my choosing. 
God says, you were on the holy mountain of God, O Lucifer. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect from, uh, in your ways from the day that you were created. Notice, till iniquity was found in you. What was that iniquity? Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Dissatisfaction with the sovereign will of God. Seeking after what is not yours. Friends, listen. This is a part of the original sin of the fall of Lucifer. And every time we begin to see it as a part of the fallen man creep up, the desire for glory, the desire who is the greatest, position, esteem, we're mirroring the first sin, the birth of sin in God's creation. Isaiah 14, 13, God says to Lucifer, he says this, For you have said this in your heart, this is what you've said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will be the greatest, essentially. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Do you notice all those I wills? I will. I will. I will. And this is the spirit of the disciples that they're mirroring. Who will be the greatest, me or you? Certainly not you. I'm better, and then you know the bantering that goes on back and forth. Coming back to our text in Matthew's gospel, what we find here, the point I'm trying to nail home, is this is not some frivolous bantering back and forth amongst the disciples. This is an original sin. And the spirit of the sin was seen even today as we mortify the natural sins of our own flesh, the sins that we have to be recognized, to have position, and to have power. I will not waste time today that is so valuable to us of looking to our modern temptations of social media and so many other platforms that have a place, they are tools, but friends, if we're not careful, they're just simply glorified platforms for us to, to toot our own horns. We do not have time to unpack that today, but may the Lord help us to guard our hearts, not only out there somewhere, but also in person. May the Lord help us to be faithful men and women who seek His glory, content with His will, seeking to be faithful where he has placed us. Here the disciples are worrying about not what Jesus is telling them, the cross, the gospel. They're worrying about all the things that Jesus has not told them about. Friends, rest in the known revelation that Christ has given you. To quote that variable uh, theologian Mark Twain, Mark Twain has said, it was alleged to have said, it's not the, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. There's some wisdom there, friends. Our job is to take all that has been given to us in the gospel and in Christ Jesus, this precious word of God, and explore and take God's truth and to avoid things that waste time, namely prideful ambitions. Titus 3.9, Paul instructs Timothy, he says this, but avoid, Timothy, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. In fact, this is a theme in the pastoral epistles, not just in an isolated corner. This problem continues not just from Jesus to his disciples, but as Paul gives instruction to the early church, the church that Titus pastors, that Timothy pastors, he's regularly reminding them, stay focused on the gospel. Timothy, Titus, stay focused on what is most important. Stay focused upon the sure, sufficient word of God. 1 Timothy 1.4, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. 
Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. By the way, it's hard to do that when ourselves in the way, isn't it? It's hard to do what Paul is telling Timothy as those who share the gospel, as those who are faithful to the truth. It's hard to give these things from a good conscience, sincere faith, pure heart, when self is in the way. When we, we are preaching self, as if we're the gospel, as if we're that which saves. Paul says, from which, and from a sincere faith from which some have strayed, having turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. 1 Timothy 4, 7, But reject profane and old wives' fables, and rather exercise yourself towards godliness, Timothy. Remind them of the things, 2 Timothy 2, 14, charging them before the Lord not to strive about of words that have no profit and are a ruin to the hearers. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Or who's the greatest in the kingdom? Am I, I, back in, that's of no profit. No profit whatsoever. Again and again, reference after reference in the pastoral epistles, Paul is giving instruction to the pastors of the church. He's saying, keep the main thing, the main thing. Sound doctrine, preach the word. The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Hold to the personal work of Christ and in humility serve the body of Christ. Church, this is our calling, every one of us as members, not to exalt ourselves, but to deny ourselves as Jesus has called his disciples to do. This question that they ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The context here, of course, is it's Matthew 18. It's the church. As we make application before moving to point number two, there's a temptation that all of us will have at different times to be prominent in the life of the church to build a platform for ourselves or some type of platform out there to be seen as a great anything, whatever it may be, as the Holy Spirit applies it. Friends, let's not elevate ourselves. Or as Diotrephes, 3 John 1, verse 9, who loves to have the preeminence. These things have no profit. Again, coming back to what Jesus says, I am one among you who serves. So, the concern of the disciples, number one. Secondly, the characteristics that they give. Notice or that Jesus gives. Number two, verse two. Then Jesus called a little child to him. Let's just hit pause here. Then Jesus called a little child to him. Here in Matthew's gospel is one of the first of the few references of a child in Jesus. A child coming into the presence of Jesus and with Jesus. Do not miss that. It really guides the remainder of the sermon this morning. It's a beautiful thought to think about children feeling welcome not only in Jesus's presence but in his teaching and preaching ministry here Jesus is teaching and instructing and preaching to his disciples and there is a child literally right here and he calls that child to come to him and that child is then comes to him when you put the gospel records together and Jesus literally takes him and makes him prominent front and center and uses him as an object lesson Now, in one sense, I'm not going to reduce the sermon down to, do you have time for children? That's not the point of the message. But we cannot overlook the fact of, in our current day and age, you think about society as a whole, there's a war on children. Children are the most abused, most neglected demographic of our whole society. And yet here we have the Lord of all the earth saying, come here, reverence, love, and affection, Maybe the more immediate context is in this first century world, children had no rights. The father could have the child slain. If a father had twins, it was the 
the doctrine of the lordship of the father in Roman society, in Roman culture. If a father, he had absolute right over every life in the household, slave, spouse, children, anyone under his charge. If they had twins, he could say, as often was the case, we don't want the girl, she's of no value, we'll keep the boy. They cast the girl out. And The reason I'm taking time to, to help you is just so we don't just gloss over this. Not only in America today is the most abused, murdered demographic of our society, children and babies and infants, listen, it was in the first century world as well. And it's in that context, in that society, that Jesus tenderly says, come here. Now, I hope you were listening today, two or three of the songs that we're singing, there are key phrases that reminds us that the infants themselves will add their early blessings on his name. Listen, Jesus has time for the children. He made them. He delights in them. So that's what he does. He decides to answer their question by calling a child to him, and he set him in the midst of them. By the way, in other passages, the disciples see children as a nuisance. They, they try to keep the children from coming to Jesus, not in this passage, but in other passages. And Jesus corrects them and says, no, 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 no. You let the little children come to me. Don't keep them from coming. And we'll see more about children at the end of Matthew chapter 18 as well. So that's not just a, we're putting too much attention on it. So he set the child in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, key word here, converted, born again, turn, repent, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is, as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now, the language that Jesus brings to bear, that he front loads in his answer here, assuredly, assuredly, means truly, take it to the bank. What Jesus is doing is, is getting their attention. Assuredly. It's almost as if he's looking them in the eye. The tone of the text, the weight of the, the meaning is truly. I say to you, unless you are converted, our text says, and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Luke 9, 47 says, And Jesus, commenting here on the same, perceiving the thought of their hearts, took a little child and set him by him, and said to them, Whoever receives this little child. Mark 9, 36, in his passage says this, He took a little child and set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not, my, not me, but him who sent me. Friends, in all of this, we behold our shepherd king and his stunning tenderness towards the least of these. We'll look more at the least of these next week and what Jesus says and the instruction that follows after that. In doing all of this, he gets their attention immediately. They're wanting to know about greatness in the kingdom, expansion, dominion, reign, position, power. <laughs> and you know what's the exact opposite of all of that? It's a little child, a little toddler who's weak, fragile, frail, dependent, needy, simple. Who's the greatest they want to know? And Jesus answers their question with an answer that's altogether different. They are asking, who's the greatest? 
And Jesus wants him to know not only who the greatest is, but who has entrance. Not only who's the greatest in the kingdom, but the answer that Jesus gives is, who's in the kingdom? Before you wonder about who's the greatest, you need to know entrance into the kingdom. And this is what brings to focus the understanding of humility. What Jesus is not saying is that children are inherently innocent or that children are inherently morally righteous. <laughs> if you have children, you know that's not the case. As Vody Bauckham says, they are vipers and diapers. And he's not wrong. We love children. There's no doubt about it. What Jesus is not glossing over here is as if to say there's some inherent natural righteousness or goodness in them whatsoever. That's not what entrance to the kingdom means. Not at all. What Jesus is pointing to is like a little child who is simple, needy, frail, fragile, dependent. So are those who are dependent upon Christ and Christ alone. So are those who renounce all self-work and worth and righteousness. So are those who renounce everything that they would naturally cling to. And just like a child needs his earthly father for life and sustenance and takes his father's word at their word and rests in them and trusts in them, so are those spiritual children who rest in their... Remember the doctrine of the fatherhood of God that Matthew's already brought into play in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Behold, pray to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew has already taught us, and he's reminding the disciples here about God is not just the God who reigns, he is, but this God is your Father. And when you pray, understand the relationship of what the gospel has done. He's no longer the judge judging you for your sin, which is his righteousness, but because of his mercy and his grace to the work of his son, you are now an adopted son and an adopted daughter as you call upon the name and trust and rest in him like a little child who turns away from all self-righteousness, self-hope. You come to God the Father as your heavenly Father, resting in him, resting in his word, humbling yourself. What Jesus is saying is no one is saved apart from being humbled and reduced to literally being a beggar for the mercy of God. In other words, you have to say no and recognize that you are lost before you can be saved. No to your natural ambitions, your natural desires and attempts to save yourself, your natural attempts to give your merits before God. Friends, you must understand this morning that you cannot save yourself. And you must understand that you need Christ. Now, this is hard. It's hard to the poorest of people, but it's especially hard to the richest of people. It's hard for even those who are not successful in this life, and it's even harder for those who are successful in this life. All of us attempt to give merit to God for why we should be his child and why he should save us. We try to make our case before him and our lostness. We try to say, look to this and look to that. I, I'm a good person. I give donations to the poor. I, I give turkeys to the least of these. I cook hams for, the, for the, the, the homeless. And we take it down and we serve it to them. Wonderful, good. All of that's good. But none of that, friends, will save you. None of it will. In order for you to be saved, you must become like one of these little children. You must become spiritually bankrupt. And that's what Jesus Teaches, Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed, notice, are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are all the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. How do we do this? It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit working in us and humbling us and showing us that we are awakened to our condition before a holy God. That is to say, no one is ever saved until they have been humbled. And no one is ever born again until the Holy Spirit has humbled them. That's what Jesus is saying here in this passage. In fact, it's what he said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. In fact, Nicodemus was a leader of Israel, a leader among Jews. He had degrees. He had polish, he had position, he had power. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus tells a man such as Nicodemus, none of those things will save you, Nicodemus. You're a leader of the Jews, that's not going to save you. You're wealthy, you're powerful, you're moral, you wear the right clothes, you give the right money, you know all these things that you do. The problem is that you do all those things. Listen, none of those things will save you. You need my work upon your account. You need my righteousness upon your account. And that's why Jesus says to him, John 3, verse 3, Assuredly, Nicodemus, I say to you, you must be born again unless, unless one is born again. He cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now hear that in light of verse 3 of our passage. Jesus says, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Same idea. This is the doctrine of the new birth. This is the doctrine of regeneration. Your translation may say turn, unless you turn, unless you repent. All of that language is wrapped up here in regeneration. So as we apply this to us, friends, this morning, have you responded to the call of Christ? Have you humbled yourself? Are you resting in Him and His work upon the cross for you? Here Jesus reminds us that we can't do any of these things without spirit-wrought humility. A spirit-wrought humility is not something we have by nature. We must respond to the call of Christ like a little child, literally Greek, uh, pideon. It means a young child, a babe. We must call upon Christ and rest upon Christ. When Jesus calls this child to himself, this child came straight to Jesus. Simple obedience. So what, what does it mean? We must come straight to Christ in his invitation. We must bow to him, run to him, rest in him. It involves repentance, as we've seen, unless you be converted, unless you turn. All throughout the Scriptures, we're commanded to repent. This is a gift of the Spirit. It's granted by God. It's given by God. And yet we are called and commanded to turn, to repent, and to trust in Christ. And friends, this morning, I do the same. I don't care who you are. I don't care how long you've been going to church, whose family you've been born into. If you've never humbled yourself and confessed your sins and you're resting in the finished work of Christ, you need to be saved. And I echo what Jesus says here. You must be converted. You must be born again. Here Jesus uses this practical object lesson and brings a child before them as a naturally trusting and accepting and loving of his father. And we are called to do the same. Verse 4, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5 reminds us in his earthly ministry God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Behold Peter the shepherd of the church that's scattered abroad faithfully shepherding them, writing to them, encouraging them in the gospel 
And he reminds them of a lesson he has learned oh so well. Friends, humble yourselves. Humble yourself underneath the mighty hand of God. And he, as James says, he will lift you up. Peter says, God, resist the proud. And Peter would insert here, trust me. <laughs> I have experience. Peter says, God, resist the proud. Like a running back, like a tailback. Seeing that would-be tackler. And that tackler comes in. And that resists him. He's not going to be overtaken by that. Stiff arms it. Now, that's not in the Greek. That's my metaphor. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to those who humble themselves with a childlike obedience and faith and humility. This is the humility that the narrow gate describes that we must pass through in order to be saved. It is so narrow that only those looking to Jesus will get through. It is so narrow that it will strip us of our flesh, our pride, our ego, our self, our pomp, our wealth, our sin. We must look to Jesus and be saved. Lastly, number three, the caution that Jesus gives. Notice there, verse five, the caution. Jesus says this, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now, this word received means to accept. Greek lexicon says this, to receive favorably, to take hold of. Just like this little child who came to Jesus at his word and his command, Jesus must be received. Remember John, Matthew 17, 5, the Father tells us that we are to listen to him. Matthew 17, 5, the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. The command of Jesus, what is it we are to hear? The command of Christ continues to go forth. Matthew 4, 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Friend, are you a child of the kingdom? Have you repented? Have you turned from your sin and turned to Christ? Or are you resting in Him? What is it that we're to listen to? Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, Christ says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, friends, we've exposited the text this morning for just a few moments here before we round out the sermon. I want to apply some points to our hearts and lives. It's a reminder to us, this passage is, that it is not the world's concept of greatness that matters. It is Christ's definition of greatness that matters. This is where we live. As the disciples continue to be caught up in all that is a waste of time, all that doesn't matter. Let's not sit in judgment upon them this morning, although it's fun sometimes to do. Let's not sit in judgment upon them and act like this is out there or way back then. May the Lord help us to mortify and to win this battle that we ourselves fight every single day. To deny ourselves. The fight between who we desire to be the natural ambitions and pride of the flesh that says exalt yourself, make much of yourself, and resting in God's calling upon us, who God has chosen us to be, denying what we want to achieve versus accepting what God grants to us, denying where we thought we would be by now and accepting that in His wise providence and sovereignty that we are where we are by the grace of God.
The problem that we have is that we measure the work of God by the standard of the world. And that is foolishness, church. It's not the world's standard of greatness. It's not our standard of greatness. But according to this passage, Christ gives us His standard of greatness. And this is what ought to matter to us here this morning. When we do find ourselves with ambitious desires, we need to ask ourselves, by the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God, where is this coming from? We admit that we are called to seek and to take dominion of the earth, to advance the gospel. We're called to spread His glory for His name. We're called to an ethic and an ethos that says everything that we do is for the greater glory of God. But I think sometimes we need to stop and ask ourselves, is it? Or is this about me? Is this about us? Is this about our fame? Is this about, is this about our name instead of His name? 2 Corinthians 5.9, Paul says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. And church, I would just remind all of us, these are matters of the heart and soul. And as Hebrews says, we need His Word to come and to splice and to perform surgery upon our hopes and our ambitions and our desires. We need to measure them by the Word of God, and we need to make sure that what we say we're doing for Him is actually of Him. And we need to ask and say, Lord, is this of you or is this of me? The theme here of this initial four or five verses, and we'll continue through Matthew 18, is this understanding, this, this spirit or this, this flower of the Spirit's planting and its humility. The rarest of virtues. Well, in fact, what, Paul is, what Christ is saying is we're called as Christ's disciples to walk in humility. And so, church, we have to remind ourselves, is this true of us? Paul says this in Romans 12, verse 3, For I say, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Humility. Humility is that rare virtue that as soon as we begin to really meditate on it, it's gone. And when it's present, we usually don't know it's present. It's something that the Lord is doing in us that is just sincere. It's beautiful. It's something we can't manufacture. Someone has accurately defined humility as that grace that when you know you have it, you've lost it. It's well been said that true humility is not thinking meanly of oneself, and it's not simply thinking of oneself. It is simply not thinking of oneself at all. Bottom line, it takes grace, the grace of God, to walk in humility. And God has not left us to wonder what it is. Philippians 2, verse 5, Paul instructs the church at Philippi, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. True humility means knowing yourself in light of the gospel. And true humility is birthed when you're led of the Holy Spirit of God and you're living for his glory alone. May the Lord help us as a church to grow in this beautiful flower of the Spirit's planting as we seek to be the salt and light that God has called us to be. One other point of application. When disciples of Jesus live for themselves and not for Christ and then His church, conflict and division are always the inevitable result. Another way of saying it is, is in our marriage, homes, husbands and wives, in our homes, moms and dads, in our church family of God, when there is conflict and division, that is to say it goes back to 
There's pride involved. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. At the beginning of this text, we see these disciples arguing and disputing amongst themselves, and it's by pride and contention. And yet God has called us, Jesus calls his disciples to a counter-cultural way of living and thinking. And this is the life of the Spirit rooted in the gospel. Well, in conclusion, Jesus is here, friends, preaching, us, preaching to us in his word. And even here and now, he calls you through his gospel. Are you in the kingdom of God? Have you humbled yourself? Have you dropped your pride? Have you dropped the image? Have you come to Christ and confessed your need to be saved? Simply put, Jesus says, you must be converted. Have you been converted? Now, there are strange creatures that we meet from time to time that says, that say something like, I've always known God. I've always loved Him. Now, this is the hardest work of a pastor is walking with people through their professions of faith. I will admit that to you. But when we understand what the Bible teaches about the doctrine of regeneration, what it means is you must be born again. Friend, have you been born again? Have you been converted? Have you surrendered everything to Him? Are you resting in Him? Have you received Him like a little child. Unless you are converted, you will not see or taste of the kingdom of heaven. Come to Jesus and rest in him. Our gracious heavenly father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Your word is the truth. Your gospel is our best friend. Your word in the gospel is the only source on this planet that will tell us what we need to hear so desperately. And so, Father, again, we remind ourselves again and again and again of your truth. And we rest in your word, in your gospel. And there's only one gospel. And it is the finished work of Christ upon the cross on behalf of your people. Father, that you came and lived the perfect life for sinners. Father, you died in our place. That you were buried in the grave. That you rose three days later. Many eyewitnesses, Lord, seeing and verifying. You rose and ascended on high. You are with the Father. You are empowering your church, interceding for the saints. And Father, you will return. You will send your Son to return to gather his bride. Father, we rest in this. We hope in this. We have tasted and seen of the gospel power in our life. We know this is true because you're at work in us even now, in this moment. You show us our sin. When we read your word, your word examines us like a surgeon's scalpel. Lord, your spirit kindly leads us to repent, to confess, to forsake, to press on in your spirit's power and the power of the gospel as we are morphed and shaped into the image of our beautiful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, this morning I pray that you will bless the preaching of your word and that you will strengthen and edify your church and that you will add all that you have purposed to add and we pray that it would be many upon many to the kingdom and to your family. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.